Welcome to the Darkness Dwells podcast. I am your host, Jason White, and this week we have a really awesome show. Rick R. Reed comes by and he talks with me about his books. And we also, uh, trying a new thing here, we also talk about uh, the 1962 classic horror movie, Carnival of Souls. Then I go solo. And I discuss uh, the 2016 film, the recent release, The Forest. Now, before we uh, get into any of that or the news, uh, let us take a look into our sponsors. Uh, First is Audible.com. Now, these guys... uh, these guys are awesome if you love audiobooks, and I've loved audiobooks for a long time. I highly recommend that you sign up with them. Uh, it's Go to www.audibletrial.com or sorry, www.audibletrial.com slash darknessdwells. And when you get there, you can choose any book you want uh, when you sign up, and you will get that uh that book for free. Now remember, it's an audio book, so you listen to it. There's apps that you can download for your cell phone, and you can listen to it off your cell phone. That's awesome. I find it's very awesome and very convenient. Or you can listen to it on your computer. You can listen to it on your iPod. It it really doesn't matter. Any device that you where you can listen to uh, audio files, MP3s, whatnot, you can uh, you can uh, download Audible audiobooks onto it's a very easy uh, membership to join up or to uh, participate into uh, as i said when you sign up with uh, the address i just gave you www.audibletrial.com slash darkness dwells uh, the first month is free basically you get the free audiobook uh, for the first month after that it's roughly 15 dollars a month and with that $15, you get one credit, and that one credit gets you any book you or audiobook you want. It's an awesome service, and I highly recommend it. And in honor of our guest this week, I'm going to suggest that you pick up Obsessed, written, of course, by Rick R. Reed. It's uh, narrated by Jack DeGolia. Uh, I think that's how you pronounce it. And it is nine hours and 45 minutes of unabridged audiobook. Here's the synopsis for Obsessed. Voices slam through the corridor of his wounded mind. The words of his dead sister cry out. His parents' taunts fill the silent room where he sits and waits. Waits for the murderous rage filling him with strength. Driving him to kill, to touch the cold flesh, taste the warm blood, to feel alive again. A witness has seen him, but his killing only turns her on, and now she wants to protect him. His wife suspects him, but the private detective she hired cannot stop him. John McAery fears nothing, except that he may no longer be human. That sounds really awesome. I'm going to check that out, and I highly suggest you do, too. Also sponsored, uh, sponsoring us is we are very proud to have Crystal Lake Publishing uh, sponsoring us. Now, these guys have been around since approximately 2012, and uh, 
and they've had pretty much unmatched success since then. Uh, they, <clears throat> excuse me, quickly have become uh, the leading indie publishers of mystery, thriller, and suspense books with a dark fiction edge. Uh, Crystal Lake Publishing puts integrity, honor, and respect at the forefront of their operations. They strive for each book an outreach program that's launched not only to entertain and touch or comment on issues that affect their readers, but also to strengthen and support the dark fiction field and its authors. Uh, they publish uh, a lot of uh, people that you've probably heard of, and I highly recommend that you check these guys out, especially uh, what was just released this week, and that is... Windchill by a former guest. I believe he was on guest or he was on episode 39. Uh, and that is, of course, Patrick Rotigliano and his book, Windchill. Now, as I just said, this book was just released and uh, I got myself a copy and I'm, uh, I'm enjoying it so far. And I highly suggest you check it out. Here is the synopsis What if you were held captive by your own family? Emma Rollins has spent the last year a prisoner. The months following her mother's death dragged her father into a paranoid spiral of conspiracy theories and doomsday premonitions. Obsessing him, controlling him, they now whisper the end of days are finally at hand. And he doesn't intend to face them alone. Emma finds herself drugged and dragged to a secluded cabin, the last refuge from a society supposedly to collapse. Their cabin is a snowbound fortress. Her very move controlled, or sorry, her every move controlled, but even that isn't enough to weather the end of the world. Everything she knows is out of reach, lost beyond a haze of white. There is no choice but to play her father's game while she plans her escape. But there is a force far colder than the freezing drifts. Ancient, ravenous, it knows no mercy, and has already taken a taste. Uh, this book actually uh, is, is sounds really awesome, and I suggest you go back and listen to my conversation with Patrick. It was a really cool discussion. We talked about H.P. Lovecraft and, uh, well, many other things, including his own work. And, uh, and also, while you're checking him out... Check out Crystal Lake Publishing. They have a lot of other really fantastic authors. And last but not least, brought to you this week, is Mother of Abominations by Desmond Reddick. Desmond, if you don't know who he is, he is, which you probably do, you should anyway, <laughs> if you're a podcast listener at all. He is the uh, host of Dread Media, and I've been listening to that for a very long time. Uh, it's, it's an awesome show and I highly recommend it. Now, I also recommend his book. Here is the synopsis for Mother of Abominations. Ripped from the pages of Monster Earth comes the first ever novel set in the world where giant, mon giant monsters reign supreme. Bree Kenny is about to blow up Parliament, but she is shocked when her plan fails and she is captured and given an offer she can't refuse. Her brother will be released from prison if she goes 
to Loch Ness to kill a man who should already be dead. A man who is over a hundred years old yet appears to be in the prime of his youth. A man named Alistair Crawley. Crawley is up to something big, and to pull it off he needs Bree and treats her like a goddess. Will Bree do what her government handlers want, or comply with Crowley's wishes? Or does Bree have a more sinister purpose in mind? To survive the next few days, Bree must fit in with Crowley's throng of political dis, uh, dissidents, including jealous May, plotting Doucette, and young, naive Emma. With her government handlers watching her every move, Bree discovers the true power within her as she brings hell to to downtown London and live up her promise as Babylon, the Scarlet Woman, the mother of abominations. <laughs> uh, this uh, sounds really awesome, and I, as I said, check out Dread Media and also check out Mother of Abominations by Desmond Reddick. All right, so uh, now we are going to uh, to head on into this show. And we will be right back with Rick R. Reed. But first, we are going to cover the news. that doesn't get your groove on I don't know what will uh, of course I'm speaking of uh, this uh, strange jazz ensemble uh, <laughs> the Kill Manjaro Dark Jazz Ensemble and their song Cotard Delusion and uh, if you like dark creepy jazz I highly recommend them so moving on to uh, the news uh, this week we have some, uh, not too much actually, it's a pretty small, small list of things to cover, but that's okay. Uh, sometimes it's good to have a small list of news. <laughs> now, uh, the first up, <coughs> excuse me, we have, uh, in the movie news, we have uh, Starry Eyes directors, and they are uh, Dennis Widmeyer, or Meyer, sorry, Dennis Widmeyer, and Kevin Kolsch. Uh, they're going to be directing, at least as of now, uh, Mama Part 2. Now, I'm not too sure... <laughs> uh, I'm not too sure this is necessary, making a sequel to this movie. I didn't like the first one, honestly. Although, I can't say that, because I did see it a second time, and it wasn't as bad, I thought, second time. One reason why I didn't like this movie is because, one, I thought they revealed the movie monster way too early, and not just that they <laughs> showed it early, uh, the movie, or the monster itself is just ridiculous looking, it's not scary, it's got these ridiculously long and skinny arms that you just, 
I don't know, it feels like he could just pick it up by one of those arms and swing it around and let go and it'll fly away. Maybe. <laughs> Alright, so uh, uh, this is what I got this uh, this news from, uh, as usual, horrormovies.ca and uh, they got it from THR and they say THR broke the news that directors Dennis Widmeyer and Kevin Kolsch uh, they previously directed Starry Eyes, which is an awesome film. They are in talks to rewrite and direct uh, Mama Part 2 for Universal. The first Mama was directed and written by Andres uh, Muschietti, uh, who has since been attached to a plethora of projects, but it seems to be now to be family, uh, firmly planted on the upcoming adaptation of It, which is, I guess, news in its own. I wish they kept the other guy that they were going <laughs> that they were getting for that the uh, the the writer no not sorry not the writer the director for the first season of uh, True Detective his name escapes me right now it's kind of a weird name but anyway um so going back to Mama Part Two here it might be interesting because Starry Eyes was as I said really interesting film. Uh, Mama was very, uh, you could say, it's one of those movies that's very typical, uh, sort of haunted house films, uh, very garnered towards mainstream audiences, not, there's nothing special about it really, and uh, so, so maybe these uh, indie sort of uh, uh, directors, <clears throat> maybe they can bring something new to it. I hope they can anyway, because, because uh, you know, the same old thing is getting boring. And the first of that was, uh, that being, of course, Mama. <laughs> it, it, it was boring. I, I, I just, I don't know. It, it just wasn't a great movie. Uh, and for the reasons I stated earlier, uh, you may disagree, and that's totally fine. <laughs> but, uh I was ex- maybe I went into it expecting more because of uh, Guillermo del Toro's uh, uh, attachment to that film. I believe he produced it, um, but I don't think he's attached to this one at all. Uh, it's sequel, but you know it'll still be interesting to see what these two filmmakers will do with it. So I guess we'll have to wait and see. That was it for the movie news. Nothing big really happening, that uh, at least that I saw. So we're going to move on to the horror literature new releases. And again, there's not much. I looked for Premier Press. There's nothing until like February the 9th, I believe. Um, Severed Press, though, had quite a few uh, offerings for this week. That being January, um, I guess January the uh 23rd around there <clears throat> excuse me uh, beginning at January 21st we had Furnace by Joseph Williams this looks like a really trippy science fiction foray into I don't know man it just looks weird and I, you know what I'm going to read the synopsis because it just looks that weird and I want to read it Okay, on a routine escort mission to a human colony, Lieutenant Michael Calm, uh, Ch- I can't read today for some reason. Lieutenant Michael Calmers is pulled out of hypersleep a month early. The RSA Rockney Hummel 
is well off course, and as the ship's navigator, it's up to him to figure out why. It's supposed to be a simple fix, but when he attempts to identify their position in the known universe, nothing registers on his scans. Nothing at all. The vessel has uh, catapulted beyond the reach of starlight by at least a hundred trillion light years. Then a planetary mass a planetary mass object materializes behind them. It's burning brightly even without a star to heat it. Hundreds of damaged ships are locked in its orbit. But before the scanners go offline, the crew discovers there are no life signs aboard any of them. As system failures, uh, as system failures sweep through the Hummel, neither Commerce nor the pilot can prevent the vessel from crashing into the surface near a mysterious ancient city. And that's where the real nightmare begins. That sounds very Lovecraftian. <laughs> and uh, and uh, very exciting. I want to read that. Okay, uh, so back to Severed Press new releases. Uh, I'm not trying to pick favorites here. I don't know Joseph Williams at all, so... Uh, also out is Run 2, as in Run Part 2, The Crossing by Rich uh, Restucci. Uh, we also have Machines of the Dead 3, and that is by David Bernstein. And uh, coming out on the 31st, which as of this recording is tomorrow, is Tribes of Decay, a zombie novel, which is the Decaying World Saga, book number one. And that's by Michael W. Garza. All right. Uh, and that, I believe, was it. Aside from the... Uh, aside from... Excuse me. Crystal Lake Publishing's... Uh, publishing. <laughs> Windchill by Patrick Rutigliano. And that is out this week, too. So I highly recommend you check out these new... Exciting new releases. Oh, there is one more release I almost forgot about. It's from my own, uh, uh, I don't know what you call them. They're a literary agency and they're also a publisher, uh, lately anyway. I don't know if I'm going to have to talk to Keith about this, but <laughs> uh, it seems like they might be moving into publishing territory for good. I don't know. But, uh, of course, I am talking about the new release by C. Derek Miller. You might not recognize that name, but you might recognize the name he went by, which was Chad Miller. And uh, he changed his name, uh, I guess, to reflect more of what his actual name is. So uh, his new book, A Taste of Home, came out this week. And uh, it's the Home series, book number one. And uh, here is the product description for that. Toby Lieberman is nearing the end of his rope. After a fateful confrontation with his wife's lover, he is chased into the woods only to be discovered by an un unidentifiable creature. He is attacked and rendered unconscious. Upon waking at the scene of a gruesome triple homicide, Tommy is, Toby is arrested as the sole suspect and thrown into a jail cell with a strange man that knows way too much about his predicament. The stranger reveals to Toby that he now possesses the curse of the werewolf. Using his newfound strength to flee his captors, Toby begins to discover that things are not what they seem in the sleepy town of Twin Oaks, Texas, 
now hunted by law enforcement, as well as the town's gun-toting civilians, Toby seeks vengeance against his false accusers and embarks upon a quest to clear his name once and for all. As answers reveal more and more questions, everything Toby knew in in life begins to crash around him. Tragedy after tragedy forces him into a final confrontation with his pursuer, revealing that Toby isn't the only person in town with dark secrets. The ancient legend of the werewolf comes to life with a Texas twist. That sounds awesome, so be sure to check that out too. I highly recommend Derek or Chad's, however you prefer to call him. <laughs> I, I highly recommend his work. Next week, you can bound or count on there being a lot of new releases because of, of Samhain. Uh, they always release a, a shit ton of stuff, or at least their uh, their monthly catalog, uh, right at the beginning of the m- of each month. So, so they'll have four or five releases probably. And uh, so that is that for new releases. And we're gonna take a quick break. Uh, to play some important messages, and when we get back, or when I get back, because there's no we right now, (laughs) but when I get back, I'm going to be joined by somebody, after all, it's going to be Rick R. Reed, and we are going to do some talking about his books and a movie. Unmatched success since 2012, Crystal Lake Publishing has quickly become one of the world's leading indie publishers of horror and thriller books with a mystery and suspense edge. With stories, interviews, and essays by the likes of Wes Craven, Neil Gaiman, Jack Ketchum, Ramsey Campbell, Kevin Lucia, Jasper Bark, Mercedes M. Yardley, Mark Allen Gunnels, and Clive Barker, you'll want to dive right in. Crystal Lake Publishing www.crystallakepub.com Like Darkness Dwells? Well, why don't you help out the show? Easiest way to do so is to sign on to your iTunes account, rate and review the Darkness Dwells podcast. And we will forever, forever love you for it. And as always, thank you for listening.
Hammer Film Productions began in 1934, and after producing almost 200 films and television programs, the studio is still releasing and re-releasing new and classic film titles. 1951 Downplace is the podcast that brings you the story of the great Hammer films, one movie at a time. Here are your hosts describing what Hammer means to them. First is Casey. Hammer means the beautiful and glamorous women of Hammer Horror, the engaging storytelling, and amazing period films. Joining him is Derek. Hammer means the incredible work of actors like Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee, and even Michael Ripper. The gothic storytelling, the incredible music, and the set pieces. And finally, here's Scott. Um, well, Hammer means how to get a nail into a block of wood. This boy has a lot to learn. Join our hosts as they make their journey through the Hammer Films catalogue and discuss each film with critical opinion, historical facts, production notes, and other information about these classic films. 1951 Downplace can be found in iTunes or their website, www.1951downplace.com. Should I have said Hammer Pants? 1951 Downplace, the home of Hammer Films discussion. Welcome back. All right, this week we have an awesome guest uh, with us. Uh, it's Rick R. Reed. He, he needs no introduction. He's uh, he's a pretty big guy. So how's it going, Rick? I do need an introduction. <laughs> you like the introductions, eh? I live for an introduction. <laughs> and oh, a warm hand. I, th- I think I think you've gone past that, though. Uh, you are. Uh, Wow, you've been in the game for a while now. Uh, you might not uh, remember me, but I do remember you all the way back about ten years ago, maybe even more, uh, when we were oh, friends. Yeah, we were friends on MySpace. MySpace. <laughs> do you remember those MySpace <laughs> days? I I do remember MySpace, and unfortunately, I don't remember you exactly. But no. Um, we both had a lot of friends. I remember you because you were quite, uh, at the time, you were quite involved with the horror scene. And uh, yes. I was I was uh, following you a lot in the things you were doing. Oh. Well, it's good that we have a prior relationship. This isn't <laughs> brand new. Um, yeah, MySpace, whatever happened to that? You know, it's still around. Just nobody's really using it. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, one one thing I like to do is I like to uh, try to get to know the author just a little bit uh, before we get into uh, some of your your work. Uh, so where are you from? Um, I live in Seattle, um, so I'm on the in the Pacific Northwest. Um, it's a cloudy day here with a little bit of blue peeking through, and um, I'm looking out the my window. I live on a bluff above Lake Union, which is a lake in the middle of the city. Um, so if you hear um, a buzzing noise in the background, it's a seaplane taking off or landing from the, the lake. Okay. Um, but the windows are closed, so hopefully that won't come through for you. But um, it might. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Um, what else? Oh, you just wanted to know where I was from. Yeah, yeah. In Seattle. And, uh, I lived in also lived in Chicago for like twenty years before I lived here. Oh wow! So, uh, so I just say that because most of my work is set either in Chicago or Seattle, or yeah. a small town either in western Pennsylvania or eastern Ohio, which is kind of a 
a model for the town I grew up in in um, east eastern Ohio. Awesome. Um, who were your biggest influences? Uh, who did you read a lot while growing up? Well, um, probably growing up, my biggest influence would have been Mr. King. Um, I've been reading him since I was, uh, I was probably read Carrie when I was 13 or something like that. Yeah. Um, and when I was a little kid, <laughs> this says a lot. I think I was probably in third grade when I read Rosemary's Baby. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> and then I, I moved on to Ira Levin's other work, which, which is pretty interesting stuff. Yeah. Um, I mean, as far as like literary influences in my life, though, overall, I would definitely say Stephen King, and I'd also mention a British uh, mystery psychological suspense writer, Ruth Rendell, who also wrote as Barbara Vine, and she just passed away in the past year, and and she's amazing, and uh, Patricia Highsmith for her Kirk kind of quirky and dark world view. She wrote The Talented Mr. Ripley and Strangers on a Train and mm -hmm. a bunch of other really good and very dark and kind of twisted uh, books. Mm -hmm. And uh, Flannery O'Connor, for much the same reason as Patricia Highsmith, she just has this, you know, wonderful Southern Gothic voice and these characters that you just can't get out of your head even if you try. Yeah. Uh, do you still read those authors today, or do you have, like, a whole new slew of uh, people that you read? Um, yeah, whenever, I'm, you know, I've been a Stephen King fan, as I said, since I was practically a child, so whenever he has something new, I, I generally read it. Um, he's probably one of the few authors, when I hear about, he has a new voice, uh, book coming out in a few months, I will pre-order it. I don't generally pre-order books, but his I do... Ruth Rendell's I would, yeah. too, but she, she's not going to have any more coming out. Um, I just read her last one, uh, I don't know, a couple months ago. And, um, I mean, I'm always reading. I, I never stop reading. Uh, right now I'm reading a kind of psychological suspense about an uh, evil child called In the Blood by Lisa Unger. And oh, yeah. it's pretty good. Cool. Um, so I'm, I mean, I'm, and I read a variety of things. I read nonfiction and fiction, um, horror, thriller, suspense are probably the, my favorite and kind yeah. of go-to entertainment reads. And I kind of, I kind of noticed that that sort of uh, uh, reflects on your own writing. Um, you are a, a seriously prolific writer, <laughs> while uh, catching up on on pretty much everything uh, that you've been doing. I kind of lost count on how many novels that, <laughs> that you've written. So how many how many novels exactly have you written? See, I'm embarrassed to, to admit that I've kind of lost count myself. <laughs> um, I think I'm I'm a, I'm either at or approaching thirty. So I would I'm guessing I'm somewhere between twenty five and thirty books. And uh, that's all within like the last uh, five to ten years, right? For the most part, most the vast majority. The first I had, my first two books were published um, in 1991 and 1993. Oh, okay, and yeah. they were they were part of um, uh, Dell had a horror line called Abyss back then. Yeah, that was just 
it, it was amazing. Poppy C. Bright was uh, her debut was a uh, Delibus novel. Kathy Koja, um, a bunch of really good people that I was really like honored to like kind of get my start with. So um, I have very fond memories of Delibus, and though to this day those books are my best-selling books. Oh yeah, um, which books were they? They were. Um, Obsessed with my first novel, and it's mm-hmm. about a serial killer who believes he's a vampire and his kind of reign of terror on the city of Chicago. And, and um, the next one I had was called Penance, which was about a uh, kind of pedophile preying on street kids in Chicago. So they're kind of gruesome um, horror that could actually happen, which I think always makes horror much more terrifying if it's if it's something that that could occur you know yeah. like jack jack ketchum writes horror that could happen it's realistic and I, that makes it all the more chilling i think yeah yeah i i noticed that uh you you uh as with your reading you uh you write in a few different uh, genres uh, from you know, like paranormal uh, thriller to contemporary to, uh, I guess you could call it a uh, gay romance. Uh, do yes. you do you have a, a preference of what you prefer to write these days? Um, I'm probably writing more romance than I used to. Well, I mean, starting out, I didn't write romance at all. I was really a horror writer, and, yeah, and I was that for many years, and I still love horror, and. I'm, certainly not finished being a horror writer, but maybe I've just um, softened as I've gotten older. <laughs> and um, I, I really enjoy kind of getting in touch with um, the emotions that come up when I tell a love story as opposed to a horror story. Although I've noticed that there are similarities between the two genres in terms of like the physical reaction you might have to a love story or a horror story. There, there could be increased heartbeat and respiration, and and just if you have the right characters, you get very caught up in them and are rooting for them to succeed in one way or another. Yeah. And so, so I'm, they're not as different as they might appear on the surface. Yeah, yeah. And you've you've from. What I've read, you've uh, always had uh, usually, you know, some romance in in your novels anyway, so it's not that far of a departure, right? Right. I mean, I think I think in order to be successful, I mean, if you look at most uh, novels, most fiction, I think there's there's always not. I wouldn't say always, but almost always, there's an undercurrent of romance. There's a love story somewhere in there. I think everybody kind of especially when they come to popular fiction, they want that. Even if the main story is something about zombies or, you know, vampires or a dystopian thing, there's still, if you if you look at almost all of those, there'll be a little bit of a love story somewhere in there. Yeah, that's true. Um, so. Go ahead, sorry. No, no, that's okay. Oh, okay. Uh, so... Uh, last year, you released a book called A Demon Inside. Uh, the uh, release date I saw for that was uh, August, I believe, of 2015. Uh, was that the uh, release date for it, or is that like a reissue? It was a reissue. Um, the first edition was published in 2010, 
by MLR Press, and then I got my rights back from them, and um, uh, DSP Publications picked it up and did a, a we did work together on a substantial revision and an awesome new cover, which I wish people could see <laughs> because it's one of the probably I don't know if you've seen it, but it's probably yeah. one of the most beautiful covers I think I have of all my books. It's very dark. And, yeah, I yeah. like it. Um, what wh- what is that book about? That that seems really really interesting. Well, it's sort of my um, haunted house story or demon story. It's about a, a very um, kind of isolated young man who who grew up sort of in a a bubble of um, exclusivity and wealth protected from the rest of the world. As a child, he, he witnessed his parents being murdered, so he lived with his grandmother, and she took care of him, kind of had him probably tutoring and thing. And when she dies, she leaves the house to him, this old kind of abandoned house that she tells him on her deathbed to destroy. And he decides, yeah. of course, being the recluse he is, and, and because of several things that happen in the book, he decides he'll go live in that house. Yeah. And there's a presence in the house that manifests itself shortly after him going there. And it's sort of a, a tug of war between who's going to stay in the house. And you know, there, there's a little bit of the, is this for real or am I losing my mind? And, and there's a little bit of love story too. Yeah. Um, I really like that idea of, of uh, a relative being on their deathbed and their last dying wish to you is to go burn down a house. <laughs> yes. you, you'd have to be like, okay, is this person insane? Or is there, uh, you know, in death or in dying? Or is uh, is there something to this? Because I don't think anybody well, would... Yeah, I don't think anybody would actually go and destroy the house. They would, they would go investigate first. <laughs> I really like that idea. Well, it's definitely intriguing. It's kind of like telling somebody not to do something specific. Yeah. You know, don't think about elephants. <laughs> and then all you can do is think about elephants. Yeah. You know, destroy the house. Well, you have to see, you have to at least see this house. Yeah, exactly. So, so uh, in December, you released an, another book. Uh, how many books a, a, a year do you release on average? Um, right now, um, I'm probably doing the past three or four years and into the future, I know into 2017, I have things kind of accepted and scheduled um, three or four a wow. year. Okay. that Yeah, that's that's a pretty good number. Um, uh, in December, you released, uh, I guess it's uh, more of a romantic novel. It's called The Couple Next Door, but it has, it's to me, it seemed to have a, a strong thriller sort of feel to it. Um, yeah. Go ahead. I would I would call it romantic suspense. Yeah, there is a strong love story, but it's really uh, a, I think one of the most twisty books I've ever written, and I've had to kind of I've had to beg reviewers and readers. There there are like two major twists in the book uh-huh. that I hope you don't see coming at all, and I think I did a pretty good job of of making them not foreseeable. And I've, I've had to kind of beg, please don't yeah, like review don't spoil it, it and reveal <laughs> the, spo- the two one, one of the two spoilers, or you know both actually. Yeah. 
but it's it's definitely much it comes down much more on the side of suspense yeah uh it looks really interesting uh can you tell us what the story is about um it's about a kind of struggling young man who lives in Seattle and um has an unhappy love life, an unhappy work life, and he comes home from a, another disappointing day at the opening of the book, and it's kind of like, um, it almost seems like a, you know, kind of lighthearted thing, you know, here's another day that didn't work out, and he's going into his apartment, and then everything switches drastically when he opens the door and goes into the vestibule, and there's like a main, um, it's a smaller building, but there's a main staircase, and he sees um, one man throwing another man down the stairs, huh. and the other <laughs> man lands at his feet, and and this is the start of um, his relationship with the couple next door, these two men who have moved in next door to him. Yeah. And things just get more and more bizarre with them, but he's more... He's more and more drawn to them. He's a nurturer. He wants to help the one guy who's abused. There's some kind of domestic abuse, but there are lots of secrets um, that he can't figure out, and I think the reader can't figure out, but that keep him um, sort of ensnared in this web. Yeah. I really like the idea of uh, pretty much like all the uh, synopsises of the books I, I, I read of yours and everything I have read from you has been just fantastic. I, I love your writing oh, style. You. Um, so what we're going to do now is we're going to take a quick break. And when we get okay. back, uh, we're going to discuss a movie. <laughs> this, okay. is, this is kind of new for the show. So uh, we'll be right back. Cryogenics. Chris, do you realize what this is? You heard of freeze-dried coffee, right? Well, this is like a freeze-dried human. A corpsicle. In a world where nations have developed giant monsters instead of nuclear weapons, Bree Kenny is about to blow up the British Parliament. But she is shocked when her plan fails, and she is captured and given an offer she can't refuse. Her brother will be released from prison if she goes to Loch Ness to kill a man who should already be dead. A man who is over a hundred years old, yet appears to be in the prime of his youth. A man named Alistair Crowley. But all is not as it first seems at Loch Ness. An ancient power is rising from the depths, and an entire cast of character wants to get control of it. Will Bree work for the crown or against it? With her government handlers watching her every move, Bree discovers the true power within her as she brings hell to downtown London and live up to her promise as Babylon, the Scarlet Woman, the Mother of Abominations. Mixing military intrigue, keiju action, and occult ritual, Mother of Abominations is the debut novel of Desmond Reddick, and the first novel in the Monster Earth series from Mechanoid Press, Keiju Pulp at its best, Available in ebook format on Amazon.com. 
All right, so uh, Carnival of Souls from 1962. I have to uh, I have to thank you a lot, Rick, for uh, sticking around to uh, to you know talk briefly about this movie. Oh, I'm happy to. It's one of my favorite movies. It's one of mine too. I actually watched it again last night for the show. Um, I watched the uh, the new color restoration version. Have you seen this? No, and actually, I was I, when I knew we were going to talk a little bit about Carnival of Souls. I, that was one question I had in mind because I kind of avoided it because of things I've read about it. Um, I haven't read kind words about no. the new version. It's uh, so. it's it's interesting. Let's just say that. But uh, I, I prefer the black and white myself, honestly. Uh, I, and it's supposedly very different too. Yeah, kind of the plot line is a little similar but it's not exactly a remake either yeah it's 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 a little different um so the synopsis a quick synopsis here and this is imdb's uh synopsis very short one (laughs) they say after a traumatic accident a woman becomes drawn to a mysterious abandoned carnival and that sounds exciting doesn't it (laughs) (laughs) it it was uh, directed by uh herc harvey who actually co-stars in in the film? Did you uh, did you know that? I did know that he's yeah. a strange man. Yes, and, and that's I think that's awesome because he keeps appearing in the in the movie. And even if you haven't seen the movie, you know that face if you're in if you're a fan of horror at all because it's it's very iconic. I think one of the reasons that's one of my favorite movies, and not just horror movies, but one of the, is because it was made on a shoestring budget. Um, I think I read somewhere like thirty-three thousand yeah. dollars, and it had it, it. The images and the atmosphere. There's not a lot of like. There's not gore or shocks, but it's it's so so creepy, and they do that so effectively. Yeah, and I, I think like one example of you mentioned the director who appears as this strange man that she keeps seeing in different places. Um, and he is genuinely creepy, but one of the creepiest images I remember from the movie, and it's been a while since I've seen it, is she's driving in her car, and she can see her reflection in the glass. Mm-hmm. And then her reflection changes to that of the strange man, just for yeah. an instant in the glass. And that, 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 I mean, that's just brilliant. And that doesn't rely on, like, really fancy special effects or anything. It's just, it, it, it hits you somewhere in your reptilian brain, I think, that that makes it truly terrifying. Yes, that's a a very... I actually remember the first time I saw that, because I had no idea that was coming, and it actually was probably... Even though I don't think it was necessarily intended to be a jump scare, I think it was one of the most uh, effective (laughs) jump scares for me, because yeah. you're just watching this woman drive down the road. It's a black and white movie. This is actually kind of a, a familiar scene with almost any of these mm-hmm. classic movies. You see people driving down the road all the time and, in those yeah. movies. And and suddenly, that what you just described happens, and you're like, oh my gosh. <laughs> you get that yeah. terrible chill running up your spine. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I also... Uh, well, to be honest with you, this whole movie... I think it's it's strange because, as you said, you can tell that it's low budget, and it is, but it's f- so very well done. Um, the one thing I like about it, the story is just phenomenal. Um, 
what you have is you have uh, the car gets run off the bridge. Uh, it's full of uh, three women, right? Mm-hmm. And and they presumably drown. You don't know what happens to them until our hero or heroine she comes out of the river and she stumbles up. And then uh, it's basically we follow her throughout the rest of the movie. She gets a job at uh, uh, to play the church organ in another town. Mm-hmm. So as she's traveling there, that's when we see that iconic scene. And then the rest of the movie is basically you don't know exactly what's going on. That's what I love about this movie because either she's going insane slowly or uh, or something else is happening, something supernatural. It's like something is, is haunting her and it's getting closer and closer, mm-hmm. especially when she goes near that carnival. Yeah, and I think it all sort of becomes clear at the end, but um, I don't want to spoil that for anybody that might have not seen it yet. But yeah. Don't you think it becomes clear? I think so, yeah. Honestly, it, I think it becomes obvious, but up until that very... <laughs> that very uh, that ending is really creepy too. I love that ending. Well, I think you can say what I mean. What the the people rising out of the water? Yeah, yeah, and uh, I mean, and the dancing and the 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 chasing. <laughs> we I think ghoulish. we can spoil it. Yeah, uh, it's very ghoulish and it's uh, it's just so very creepy because uh, she's. You know, basically, uh, this is what happened. Uh, you, you know, uh, you didn't survive <laughs> the yeah. the accident. But that that uh, just the concept of that always thrills me. It's sort of like a Jacob's Ladder type thing. Um, yeah. Or are you familiar with an occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge? It's an Ambrose Bierce short story. Oh, yes. You know what? I haven't thought about that one in, in ages. Yeah. It's sort of the same concept where, and I I might be misspeaking, but I, I know it's someone being executed, like hung, and I think they're hung off of the bridge, and then they go into the water, and then all these things happen, but it's actually what happens to him in his mind or his spirit when he's when he's dying. gone yeah or dying yeah that uh that always fascinates me though because because life i don't know uh death itself is so you know such a mystery nobody actually knows what what could happen or does happen um just the idea of living for a while even if it's just in your mind while you're dying uh you know, beyond that experience, and then realizing that ooh, you're uh, you're not you know you're not alive, you're dead, you died in that accident. Yeah. The reason why I like that so much is because you have this uh, this protagonist that's being chased down uh, pretty much by by death, and uh, mm-hmm. and just the things you can do with that, I think, is is fascinating, and. They, I think they did an excellent job in this movie. This movie, even though it has a fairly simple plot from beginning to end, it's just so much fun to watch. I, I it es- is. I especially it's enjoy... one of those movies you can watch many times. Yes. And I have seen it several times. And, and you, you don't get bored of old. it. Yeah, I, exactly. Um, I especially enjoy the scenes where, like, 
this is where you start questioning her sanity when uh uh when when nobody responds to her everything goes quiet right. and uh, she's like going to everybody hello can't you hear me <laughs> yeah and that's that's such simple but so powerful yeah it, to, to like be speaking and no one it's like no one hears you yeah and uh that would be scary on its own like the confusion that would bring about would almost make you feel sick i think Mm-hmm. And uh, and it's a clue to what's going on. Oh yeah, for sure. Because and I, I I I'm trying to remember the beginning when she comes out of the water. I think it, it's a while before she comes out of the water, isn't it? Yeah, they're searching for. They're like raking the. Uh, I mean, like she couldn't have been in the water that long. No, and uh, I guess so. I, I kind of thought when I first saw it, oh, this is a flaw. Yeah, they screwed up because. <laughs> She's been in that water too long. But yeah, then, she should be dead. Yeah. Movie. Yeah. Yeah, I like the way she comes out of the water too. She's like almost like a zombie. The way she's stumbling and the look on her face. Oh and yeah. The funny yeah. thing is, is I think her hair is dry too. Hmm. I have to go and I'll relook look, at that. I have to look at that again. But yeah. now that I'm thinking of it, I think when she comes out of the water, her hair is dry, which could be an indication of of you know what's happening. But I could be wrong about that too. Um, I'm going to need to watch it again now. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, uh, the the star is uh, Candace Hill, uh, sorry, Hillegas. Now right. she she, uh, she never really did much, I don't think, except for this this movie. Uh, she she appeared in a few other things, but this is, I think, uh, the biggest uh, role for her. Uh, do you know anything about her? Um, I think I have, you know. Googled her before to see because I you know other than this she did seem to vanish but but on the other hand I would say that um, I think Carnival Carnival of Souls was like a B-side horror movie made for like you know driving movie consumption back in the 60s so I don't think anyone knew it was going to become this cult classic that would be, uh, you know, there'd be a Criterion Collection edition of it. And, yeah. Um, I think it's just kind of a popular, somebody, what's the word for it, when things kind of catch up? Cult. It's a cult classic. Oh, yeah, very much, for. yeah. Like, like Freaks or, um, you know, Night of the Living Dead was even like, you know, a cheeky horror movie, but probably no one expected it to become this classic. Yeah. And I think maybe, you know, I don't know if Candace Hillegoss, you know, wanted to become a star, but I don't know if this, back in the 60s, this um, Carnival of Souls was such a great feather in her cap, or, you know, that casting directors would come calling. Yeah. So, who knows? But I should, I, I am curious I'm curious too because she she held this role. Pre- I think she did a really good job, and uh, she kind of owned her role. I think throughout the whole thing, and for for somebody who's not really, uh, you know, she probably did a lot of theater and stuff, but to do a movie and to hold you know the main character uh, position down as she did, that takes some skill. So mm-hmm. I, I don't know what happened to her. Maybe she just didn't like it after. I don't know. Yeah, but if I you know. if you yeah, if you look at the rest of the cast, including the uh, the director, not they all of them really haven't 
done much but this movie like there's scatterings of things that they all did but so it's almost like this movie was meant to you know for all them to to kind of get together and make this movie <laughs> and then uh mm-hmm. and then drift off into the you know into the darkness and leave us with this uh with this great classic yeah, it looks like I'm just looking her up online while I'm sitting here. It looks oh, yeah. like she only did, um, after Carnival of Souls, she did a movie called Curse of the Living Corpse in 1964. And then there, and then the only other credit is a short film called Greenstone in 1980. Oh, wow. And there's a couple appearances on television. Yeah. So... So she must have found something else, or maybe she just did a lot of theater, uh, or maybe she taught acting. It's hard to say, but it's too bad that we didn't see more of her because uh, she was good. Everyone was good, and including the creepy neighbor, <laughs> that guy who had like a, a rapey vibe um, about him. That <laughs> was kind of interested in her. Yo, he was more than interested. He was like so very. Uh, very, uh, very obvious about it, but he was very pushy too. You get yes. this, this kind of creep. Like, I guess back then, when you're watching the movie back then, he he was like a love interest. But, but I think in today's world, he gets this sort of uh, creepy, you know, uh, rapist <laughs> vibe about Almost, him. Yeah, stalker. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> so yeah, it's a, it, overall, it's a wonderful film. And uh, and uh, I have to thank you for uh, for discussing it with me. Oh sure, I'm always happy to talk about good horror movies. Yeah. Before we go, I just want to know uh, what can readers expect from you in the near future? What do you have coming out? Um. Well, as far as I'm trying to, I know your your podcast is geared more toward horror. Oh, you can you can name anything. Uh, anything you got coming out, that's good. Well, what I have coming out next, actually, is coming out very soon. And it's it's also a reissue, but it's it's heavily revised, and and um, I kind of like a new book. Um, it's coming out on February 9th, and it's called Mute Witness. And it's um, about the abduction and abuse of a child and um, how a small town turns against this gay couple who is um, just because they're gay and they had nothing to do with what happened to the little boy the part of the couple one of the um, men is is the boy's father Uh and so um, that's coming out on February 9th and um, let's see what is um, I have a story in a uh, anthology called Seven Plus Seven, and it's an anthology with stories all based on sins, the seven deadly sins and the seven virtues. Cool. And my story is called Hope, and I, I, you know, I think that's pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, and in April, I have um, a story called Big Love coming out, um, and it is a contemporary romance, but it's uh, probably my first book set in a high school, and um, I, I think it's you know, kind of, uh, it's, it's a book that when I read it in edits, I can't keep from crying. Oh yeah. So it's, it's very emotional. Uh, so did, did you, so find... those are some of the, 
Oh, go ahead. Uh, did you find, like, I like the idea of it being set in high school. Did you find it difficult to uh, kind of going back into that kind of that kind of mindset? You know, I didn't find it. I didn't find it so difficult. Because, uh, the difficulty, I think, came from there are two teachers who fall in love that are, are my romantic element of the story. But a big element of the story is a freshman boy who's bullied. And yeah. it's about him finding his strength and finding power in just being himself. And I, I really identified with that boy. I wish I had had his strengths that I gave him in the book. But, yeah. um, but I did give him my last name, even though I spelled it differently. Um, and so going back and confronting what it felt, because I was, I was teased and bullied as a high school student and, and to go back and face those demons again and actually have someone embrace who he is and and kind of overcome uh, those terrible things. Those, yeah, yeah. So it was good and bad, but it I think it helped me get in tune with what it was like to be in high school again. Yeah. So um, everyone, go out and uh, buy these books. Uh, you've been a great... A guest, and I hope to have you on again. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to. Thank you, Jason. All right, thank you. You sweat, but you don't dare move. You want to scream, but you can't. Terror grips every nerve in your body, and your heart is beating so fast, it feels like your eardrums are going to burst. You swallow hard, and you realize there is nothing you can do but wait and squirm. Now American International Pictures presents Squirm, the ultimate horror. Millions of writhing, seething creatures oozing out of the mire, shocked into a frenzy by 100,000 volts of electricity, driven by an uncontrollable urge to feed on human flesh. Squirm. Rated R, 17, not admitted without parents. Evil will have its finest hour when the grave opens and Count Yorga returns to walk among the living. Wouldn't it be something if vampires did exist? They do. Not in the classical sense, of course, but uh, there are those who thirst for blood. In fact, thrive on it. Can the dead desire? Can the lifeless lust? Can a vampire fall in love and give a normal kiss? Cynthia, what have I told you I possess the power to give you eternal life? Right now, this very moment. I'd say you were marvelously mad. Count Yorga returns from the land of the dead to seek a mate from among the living. This time it might be you. One never knows when he might encounter some of the more unusual truths that exist in this world. See the return of Count Yorga, the most unearthly love story ever filmed. Here is a vampire picture you can really get your teeth into. In color, rated GP. sister, Jess. And I. We're identical twins. When something happens to one of us, the other one can tell. It's hard to explain, but I can just feel it. She's in trouble, and she needs me.
Your sister went into Aokigahara Forest. It's where lost people go to commit suicide. What? I'm coming, Jess. I'm looking for my sister. She went into the forest. I want to hire a guide. No guide. Forest is very dangerous. Spirits cannot rest there. They come back. Angry. I can't let you go in by yourself. I have clearance to go in with the guard. I could ask if you could come. The forest is very dangerous. Do not leave the path. Oh my god, that's our tent. Yes! 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 You cannot stay after dark. I'm not leaving without my sister. Yes! At night, people see bad things. You get paranoid. Two thousand and sixteen's the forest. Now I had the uh, pleasure of going to see this a couple of weeks ago, and uh, to be honest, when I went in uh, to watch it, I, I really had no idea what I uh, was going to ex- uh, you know expect. I didn't know what to expect to see. I honestly, I, I kind of thought that I would hate it, and for the first little bit, I thought I was right. Now, uh, <laughs> let me go into this before I go any farther on that. Excuse me. <clears throat> so, the IMDb synopsis is uh, another wonderful synopsis. <laughs> and it is this. A woman goes into Japan's suicide forest, which is called... Uh, Ak- oh, sorry. Aokigahara. Okigahara. So it's called the Okikahara Forest to find her twin sister and confronts supernatural terror. Lovely. Somebody put a lot of thought in that. <laughs> okay, it's directed by Jason Zada. Now, uh, his first this is his first full-length uh, movie where he has a, a director credit. He did a couple of shorts and whatnot. And he was also a, a co-writer for Houses October Built. So, you know, not, not a bad beginning. Uh, and the shorts he did look interesting. I've never seen them, but they do look interesting. Uh, the writers for this is uh, Nick uh, and Tosca and Sarah Cornwell. Uh, and also starring uh, Natalie Dormer. You'll recognize her from Captain America. Hunger Games, and Game of Thrones. It's also starring Ewan Mackin, uh, Stephanie Vogt, 
and Taylor Kinney from uh, you, you might recognize him from Zero Dark Thirty. So the forest, if nothing else, is an interesting, or at least built on an interesting concept. The uh, <laughs> the forest that it's uh, uh, named and uh, sort of the theme is based on. Uh, the Okigahara Forest. It's it's a real place where people uh, tend to commit suicide a hell of a lot more than anywhere else in Japan. I don't know why they go there. Maybe it's just convenient. <laughs> I mean, you know, we could be placing all this uh, all this mystery on something that's nothing but hey, it's just a bus ride down the road. You know, there's lots of trees. We could just hang ourselves right there. <laughs> it could be something like that. I don't know, but <laughs> but maybe there's something else to it. You uh, you just don't know. And it could have a a, a, a serious cultural uh, balance or something to that. Uh, it's I believe it's located right like at the bottom of Mount uh, Mount Fuji, and uh, people go there. And uh, and they go there to, to die. So, uh, Natalie Dormer, she plays the role of a set of identical twins, uh, Jess and Sarah Price. The movie begins with Sarah getting a phone call from the Japanese police. They tell her that her sister is missing, and uh, she was last seen entering the Okigahara forest during a class trip. She's uh, over there. Uh, teaching, uh, I guess English, I think it was, and uh, well, she hasn't been seen since. It's been a couple or a few days, so they're pretty much convinced that she's probably, you know, dead. So Sarah has trouble. Uh, Sarah, obviously, I I know people like this. It's not that far out of the reach. Uh, there's some people I know or I've read and heard on other podcasts complaining about this movie in regards to bad decision making and that includes uh, Sarah jumping on a plane and heading to Japan to the uh, Okigahara forest to you know look for her sister I know some people I'm related to some people who would do this because or if they had the money anyway (laughs) I mean most likely they wouldn't do it but if they had the money and they could they probably would because uh, their bond to their family members is very strong. And you sort of get the feeling that this it's not just about them being twins, although that's the theme or the idea. But uh, uh, Sarah, she wants to jump on that plane, but uh, I want to mention this part because, I don't know, this guy seems like a douche, and perhaps he's supposed to be playing the voice of reason against making a bad or a supposed bad decision. But her fiancé, Rob, played by uh, Owen Mackin, he says that her sister is nothing but but trouble and and that she's pulled this kind of bullshit before and she will do so again. And that she's only doing it for attention. Now, I'm like, dude, this is her sister. If she's troubled, then yes, she needs help. Uh, it seems very douchey to me, as I, as I said, and I've read and heard complaints that this seems like a bad decision on the protagonist's part, but honestly, I don't think so. 
most people wouldn't go. But I think, uh, as I said, the most reason for that would be the cost of the flight ticket. And uh, not everybody can go ahead and do that. So I think that uh, our our heroine, she's uh, she at least has enough money on her credit card <laughs> to be able to do so. So she she leaves dickhead Rob behind, and she goes after her sister. And she r- arrives in Japan, and this is where I start having problems with the film. Because if you're going to talk about bad decision-making, I think this is uh, where you might see some of that. And uh, first, it feels as though there might have been a great script to this film. But, I don't know, it has this feeling that studio hands got in the way uh, in regards to rewriting it. Um, The entire beginning of the film is filled with backflashes and exposition uh, regarding the sisters' uh, relationship with uh, their parents, with each other, and uh, the reason why the sister goes to Japan. Uh, That would be Jess. And as as I said before, she's going there to teach uh, children uh, the Eng- English language. I like I said, I believe I don't remember exactly, but uh, all that's done in exposition. While uh, uh, during the beginning of the film, it I really don't think that was needed. You could have had a very short beginning explaining all this stuff from point A to point uh, you know D without doing that it's just very jarring it takes you out of the whole thing and uh to me it just seems as though someone said there's too much here we need this movie at 90 minutes so we're gonna have to cut it down and so they ruined what could have been an interesting beginning fitting in with uh what was you know a pretty interesting rest of the movie Another example of bad writing or rewriting for the studio idiots are uh, the decisions Sarah makes once she arrives in Japan. Now, like I said, her going to Japan and her going into the suicide forest is not, I think, a bad decision. Um, because she's uh, she's looking after... First of all, she doesn't believe that there's anything supernatural happening. So why is it a bad decision for her to go there? to look for your sister it's not you're there to watch a horror movie so you know something bad's gonna happen but her character does not so that's not a bad decision um however once she arrives there instead of uh, going straight to the suicide forest uh, she instead takes a night to go shopping and to uh <laughs> And to, uh, you know, eat some weird foreign food that still moves, even though it's cut in half. I think that's a bad... It's bad. I I would say it's not just a bad decision on the the character's part. Because, well, first of all, I could have missed something or forgot it. Maybe there was a delay and she can't get to the forest until the next day or something like that. But my argument is that if there's a... If there's anxiety to drive her to actually go to Japan to look for her sister, I'm thinking the same anxiety would lead her to not even consider going out shopping and and eating exotic dinners. She would probably be pacing her dinner, eating takeout. 
or sorry, she would be, uh, she'd be pacing her hotel, her motel, wherever <laughs> she's staying, and uh, she would be eating takeout, if eating at all. And she'd be waiting anxiously until she could get that trip to the forest where her sister was last seen. But instead, she, you know, it's it's not just the fact that she goes shopping; it's it's the way she does it. She's like, she's perusing the streets. She's, uh, uh, you know, she looks like she's, uh, you know, in her. Uh, she looks like she's on vacation. <laughs> And that's just wrong, because she's not on vacation. She's there for a serious purpose. And uh, but once she gets there, um, uh, the writing I felt does improve, because she makes it to the forest, as I said, and and she meets this guy named Aiden, and he's the dude who who agrees to help her, but he agrees for a reason, and he tells her up straight that uh, that he's a reporter. Uh, for, uh, I believe it's a, uh, it's either an Australian magazine or a newspaper, I can't remember which, but, but he wants to do a story on her and her search for her sister, and, uh, that's, uh, so he knows a guy who he was going to go into the forest with the next day, and he's like, come tomorrow, and, uh, I'll introduce you, and we'll see if you can come, and, uh, the, uh, the scout, this guy's job is interesting because his job is basically to go into the forest every day uh, I don't know if it's every day or every couple of days maybe just once a week but it's his job to go in there and to look for bodies <laughs> and so uh, so he reluctantly agrees to take her to and they set off into the forest now from the beginning once she arrives at the forest she's told not to stray off the uh don't stray off the trail because uh, you'll get lost and the forest will show you things you don't want to see and <laughs> and uh and you know you basically hallucinate and you know this does happen uh, so i don't really want to uh, spoil the film any farther from here because this is where the cool stuff really begins to happen um and it becomes a fairly entertaining film that i felt was fun to watch uh, one thing I really enjoyed was the chemistry between Natalie Dormer and Taylor Kinney. Uh, there's a few times where paranoia sets in uh, while they investigate the woods, and they begin arguing. Well, <laughs> actually, they begin shouting at each other. Well, I would say Natalie Dormer or Sarah, she begins shouting at uh, at Aiden. <laughs> but it's very believable. The look in their eyes when they argue is just... It's like they're a couple and have been a couple for a long time. There's a lot of passion and anger in those eyes. Uh, to criticize the movie further, though, I do think that there were possibly a few missed opportunities when they enter the forest. Uh, there's a point where these two characters stay uh, the night uh, at, in the forest, which obviously is not rec recommended by their scout. The scout's like, uh, you can tell he doesn't want to leave them behind, but he does. He he's like, all right, you guys are staying. I'm not. <laughs> um, so he leaves, and uh, and of course they there's some very very creepy things that happen during this period of time in the in the film. I just feel they could have went farther. All in all, though, I think that this is a good film with some, 
you know, it has some serious problems. And I think, like I said before, I, I'm pretty sure that there, the, the movie's problems are... I would guess that I'm right, 90% at least, that it's studio involvement. I could be wrong, but I don't think so. It would be interesting to see if there's ever a director's uh, cut release in the future, but I doubt we'll ever see something like that for a film like this. Um, yeah, it's just not popular enough. And if they do release something like that, it'll probably only have like 40 seconds of additional footage. Um, when I went to go see this, though, uh, as usual of late, I went with my niece and her cousin. They're both in their mid-teens. Now, this is one thing, or perhaps one reason why I stay positive about these types of films, is, is seeing their reactions to to films like this one. Um, they loved this movie. They thought it was freaky as hell. Um, <laughs> they might not think so in 10 or 20 years' time, but watching them scream out in terror or laugh with more fear behind it than humor was just amazing. And there's a lot of other, actually, you know, same-age kids in the audience, and they reacted exactly the same. Um, but the forest does have a lot of horror tropes that you've seen before if you watch a lot of horror movies. And I would argue that most of them are, you know, they're done very well, I think. And uh, this movie isn't exactly made for, you know, dudes like me. It's made for the kids I brought with me to see the film, and it worked on them. They fucking loved it. And maybe that's the point. To be honest, I, I enjoyed my experience, too. There were a lot of good, really creepy scenes in this one, uh, from the middle towards the end of the film. Although there's, there's this one jump scare at the end that is horrible. I mean, I, I believe it was bloody good horror that mentioned this and it's so true now, you've seen on Facebook that stupid uh, you know stare at the screen you'll get scared trust me <laughs> and so you're staring at the screen while this video plays and you don't know what you're supposed to see until some idiot wearing you know ghostly makeup goes Rawr! at the screen and you jump right at the end there the exact same thing happens at the end of this film, and it's horrible. It's just terrible. It, I would not be proud of that. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> the movie itself, it, it, it's a very dark movie. It has a very dark subplot involving why the missing twin is so fucked up in the head. And uh, the movie has what I feel is an important message, and I think it's good for, you know kids to learn this as uh, early as you can possibly teach it to them and the message is this do not fear looking into the darkness if you avoid it for too long when you finally do catch a glimpse of it it will swallow you whole and so that was my experience with uh, the forest I, I don't really want to go too much more into any plots because there are a few things that happen that you know it's just one of those films. It's not like uh, Nightcrawlers, where that movie was more about the journey. Uh, not really. There was no surprises in that film. It was a, it was totally about the journey. This movie does have some surprises in it. If you haven't seen it, 
Then, uh, I don't know if it's still available in theaters. Like I said, I saw this about two weeks ago when it was in theaters. But if you do get the chance to see it in theaters, then, yeah, sure, I recommend it. I would give it, I guess, about a three... I want to give it a four, but it's not worth a four. I think uh, 3.5 stars out of five. Um, It's entertaining. It has its problems. But there's some really cool stuff in there that I think you'll enjoy. So that is the show for this week. Thank you, as always, for listening. Um, Future episodes, we have a lot of interesting things coming up. Uh, A lot of uh, interviews, um, some movies with Michael and I, and, uh, you know, just the usual good stuff. So so stay tuned. If you really want to help out the show, I can't urge you enough to uh, go to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review iTunes they pretty much control all of podcasting and if we get enough uh, ratings and reviews then they will share us with <laughs> with their world and our audience will grow as a result so uh, thanks again for listening if you want to contact the show you can do so easily by emailing us at darknessdwells74 at gmail.com you can find us on twitter at darkdweller74 you can find us also on facebook where uh, uh, there is a page you can like and that page is www.facebook.com slash where darkness dwells speaking of where darkness dwells you can uh, you can find our webpage at wheredarknessdwells.com and uh, there's also speaking you know Facebook I almost forgot to mention there is a group on Facebook that has seen some <laughs> it has seen some uh, you know <laughs> some action uh, not not very much but you know it's growing so the whole thing is growing and so I urge you to uh, go there and uh, you know start up a conversation you know talk with us tell us something that you would like us to review or talk about so there you have it we will see you again very shortly probably and most obviously in a week (laughs) and we have a very exciting guest next week that I uh, that I don't know if I want to tell you about right now you might get too excited ah fuck it it's Richard Thomas. <laughs> He's an awesome writer, and uh, we had a we had a really good conversation. I can't wait to bring that to you. So uh, yeah, stay tuned. 
we will have some more awesome content for you. And as always, good night. And sweet dreams.